Good morning and it's Friday the 23rd of June and I'm Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai India's financial capital. Our top reports of the day Musk can set up a car plant, a battery company, an internet service, hold on. An India logistics story how ice cream travels from Pune to all over the country. The only thing Baiju can teach is how not to run a company. The rains are delayed but don't panic yet. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Elon Musk is back. Elon Musk who we spoke of in the context of cars and batteries, I mean electric cars, just yesterday is back. On the core report, I mean this morning as well. Reuters is reporting that he is eager to bring his Starlink satellite broadband service to India but is facing strong resistance from Mukesh Ambani who runs telecom giant Jio. Following a meeting with Prime Minister Narendra Modi in the United States on Tuesday, Musk reportedly said he was keen to launch Starlink in India, which can be incredibly helpful in remote villages that have no internet or lack high-speed services. Of course, Reliance and Airtel, run by Sunil Mittal, among others, also want to be equally, if not more, helpful in entering this segment. Anyway, the point of conflict is apparently this: Starlink is lobbying the government to not auction the spectrum. but just assign licenses in line with a global trend saying this is a natural resource that's spectrum that should be shared by companies an auction may impose geographical restrictions that will raise costs it said in company letters made public by the indian government this month now reliance disagrees and has called for an auction in a public submission to the government saying foreign satellite service providers could offer voice and data services and compete with traditional telecom players and so there must be an auction to achieve a level playing field reuters further says quoting sources that reliance will continue to nudge the indian government to auction that satellite spectrum and not agree to the demands of foreign companies Reliance Jio got its satellite broadband license also by the way in September last year a few months after OneWeb did now OneWeb who we shall talk about a little more is 30% owned by Bharti Airtel along with the UK government among other investors Sunil Mittal however is the chairman of this company so you can see how it's becoming an interesting three way fight incidentally Starlink launched in the Philippines for a monthly fee of about $50 a month and a $526 installation charge speeds there range from 50 megabits per second to 200 megabits per second now this is like a base charge from what i could see the price starts moving up as you bring in the ability to move to a different location or be mobile like on a car or a boat from what i could understand the rates in the philippines are competitive if not better than broadband services offered by local telecom operators but the ostensible pitch is similar from what we heard musk say targeting parts of the country where internet access is low now that does make some sense in the philippines which is pretty dispersed over 7000 islands now that is not the case in india and let me delve into that before we go further let me play you what mukesh ambani said in his address to shareholders at the annual general meeting in august 22 almost a year ago now let me now talk about jio's fixed line network Jio's high quality redundant and always available fiber optic network is the information backbone that carries data traffic from every corner of India and connects it to the global internet. Today, Jio's pan India fiber optic network 
is more than 11 lakh root kilometers in length, enough to go around the planet Earth more than 27 times. Over the past year, we also saw acceleration in the adoption of geofiber, with two out of every three new customers choosing geofiber. Geofiber is now the number one FTTX service provider in India with over 7 million connected premises, a feat achieved in less than two years despite COVID lockdowns. So you get a sense on what's already been laid on ground by Geo, which will drive what is on ground as well as over ground or wireless. Now let's see what he promised he would roll out this year, notably 5G. Using 5G technology, we can now deliver breakthrough increases in broadband speed, network capacity and number of connected users while dramatically reducing latency. With Geo 5G, we can achieve three simultaneous objectives. One, we can build on the success of Geo 4G by introducing an even more advanced version of our mobile broadband service. Two, we can accelerate the rollout of high-quality, highly affordable, fixed broadband services to hundreds of millions of locations in a very short period of time. And three, we can use this vastly expanded broadband availability to further stimulate the adoption of connected intelligent solutions across all walks of life. Specifically, we can connect over 100 million homes with unparalleled digital experiences and smart home solutions. We can leapfrog tens of millions of small merchants and small businesses by empowering them with cutting-edge plug-and-play solutions delivered from the cloud. We can provide lakhs of medium businesses with the same digital capabilities that were historically available only to larger companies. We can accelerate the digital transformation of tens of thousands of our large enterprises and make them globally competitive. We can launch billions of smart sensors with connected intelligence that can power the Internet of Things and the fourth industrial revolution. With Geo 5G, we can connect everyone, every place and everything with the highest quality and the most affordable services. Now, this is a shareholders meeting and hence you could possibly discount a little here and there. But from all accounts, Geo seems to be on track. At this point, Reliance says Geo True 5G is available in most key Indian cities but promises to reach every town, taluka and tehsil of India by December 23 or in six months time. Or broadly what was promised almost a year ago. So while Reliance is promising all of this, Airtel is not far behind. Last October, that's October 22, Airtel founder Sunil Mittal said Airtel 5G services were available in eight cities, that they would be available in most major cities by around now and the entire country by March 2024. Now let's go back to satellite. Airtel's OneWeb was hoping to launch in India in July or next month. OneWeb now says it has 618 low-Earth orbit or LEO satellites which completes its constellation and positions it to start global satellite broadband coverage. Sunil Mittal, though, has said the same thing as Elon Musk, which is that spectrum for satellite communications should not be auctioned, but allotted administratively, as is the global norm. So the three-way fight, as I mentioned, it's Reliance versus Airtel, 
not for the first time, of course, and Elon Musk on the other side too. So while the projections for satellite broadband seem quite rosy, consulting firm Ernst & Young says that it could grow to $4.7 billion by 2025 and that nearly 75% of rural India does not have access to broadband as many locations are still without cellular or fiber connectivity. It is not clear to me that Reliance and Airtel's own 5G push, going by their promises and by what they've delivered already, will not fill most of those gaps. Remember, just to repeat that term, Jio is saying that every tehsil in the country will have a network. Now, most telecom companies playing the satellite game seem to be looking at clusters of houses or villages to serve, a market which is technically there and will remain. But it is unclear to me how big, at what price, and how profitable given how most of the telecom sector is usually fighting or even gasping for air. The high-yield markets for broadband are clearly in the bigger cities, which are already penetrated quite strongly or have stiff competition. So whether on space or ground, this is another battle that promises to be interesting. And one, Elon Musk may not receive the same welcome he gets when he talks cars or batteries. Speaking about Musk and the United States, more deals around Prime Minister Modi's visit. GE Aerospace said yesterday it's linked a much-awaited pact with Hindustan Aeronautics to jointly produce fighter jet engines for Indian Air Force's light combat aircraft, LCA MK2 Tejas. The announcement came during Modi's first state visit to the United States at the invitation of President Joe Biden, which has been going on for the last couple of days. The agreement includes the potential joint production of GE Aerospace's F-414 engines in India and GE Aerospace continues to work with the US government to receive the necessary export authorization for this, the US firm said in a statement. GE's F-414 military aircraft engine powers fighters like the Boeing Super Hornet and the Saab Gripen. The pact to build them in India for the LCA Tejas MK2 marks a milestone in India-US ties and the final burial of the technology denial regime, the Indian Express said, adding that only a handful of countries, such as the United States, Russia, the United Kingdom and France, have mastered the technology and metallurgy needed to manufacture an engine that can power combat aircraft. From combat aircraft and airplanes, let's switch to something more on-ground, with logistics and transport. Now, transporting anything in India used to be a nightmare. A unified goods and services tax came along, or GST, and that changed a lot of things, particularly for the logistics sector. Add roads that are constantly getting better, and you can start to imagine a situation where a company like Baskin Robbins makes ice cream in one location in the country and then distributes it all over, thanks to new age cold chain logistics. I always remember in my interviews at Hindustan Unilever, that cold chain infrastructure or the lack of it was always considered a big hurdle in the growth of the food processing industry, including the effective storage of fruits and vegetables. Most of those problems have not been resolved, at least to the extent that we would want to, but an efficient cold chain transport system is definitely freeing up some of the cogs in the wheel. As I found in my conversation with Sunil Nair, CEO of Snowman Logistics, one of India's leading cold chain warehousing and transport companies. Here he speaks on Baskin-Robbins as we now focus on the journey of an ice cream cup. So we we do national distribution. So let me just take one example. So let's take Baskin-Robbins ice cream. It is manufactured in Pune. It moves in boxes to 
various uh, cities where we have our cold storages. So we move it in refrigerated trucks. These are typically large 32 feet refrigerated trucks. We move it, let's say, for example, we move it to Chandigarh. So the particular truck will go to Chandigarh. It will be unloaded in our cold storage and then it is kept at minus 20 degrees centigrade. And then as per the requirement, the ice cream parlors or the distributors of Baskin Robbins, we go and deliver it to them. These are all boxes till then. And after that, they supply it to the uh, small shops. We supply it to the ice cream parlors. There are two types of ice creams that we supply. One is the typical tubs, which are, you know, uh, small cups. Or uh, we supply the bulk also, 4 liter bulk, from where they serve the scoops. So this is the complete journey throughout which the minus 20 degree or below that the temperature has to be maintained. And uh, then it is it uh, comes into the hands of consumers. And what's the furthest distance your trucks are going, at least in the context of Baskin-Robbins? In the context of Baskin-Robbins, I would say that it must be going to Imphal. Imphal would be the furthest. And how long would that take? It will not go straight to Imphal. It will go to Siliguri and from there it will get further transported. So if I see a complete journey, it would take anywhere between 12 to 15 days. In one direction? In one direction, yeah. Okay, so yeah. you're saying that, that ice cream has to be preserved uh, at minus 20 for 12 days as it's absolutely, moving? Absolutely, absolutely. yeah. And you mentioned Chandigarh. How long would that take? No, from Pune to Chandigarh only, it will take uh, four days. Then it gets stored for a couple of days and then it gets supplied further to the distributor or parlor and then it goes in the hands of consumer. So when I talked about Imphal, I'm talking about reaching it in the hands of a consumer. Baiju's, what not to learn from the teacher? Baiju, the edtech company's biggest lesson, appears not to be to the students who buy its course materials, rather on how not to run a company, at least from a corporate governance point of view. In a latest development, its statutory auditors, Deloitte, Haskins and Sells, have reportedly resigned due to the delay in the company's filing of financial results. Business Standard is reporting that in a letter to the board members of Think and Learn Private Limited, the parent company of Baiju's, Deloitte said, the financial statements of the company for the year March 31st, 2022 are long delayed. We have not received any communications on the resolution of the audit report modifications in the respect of the year and in March 31st, 2022, the status of the audit readiness of the financial statements and the underlying books and records for the same year ended March 31st, 2022, and we have not been able to commence the audit as on date. Meanwhile, the Economic Times reported, quoting sources, that three of Baiju's directors had resigned, including investors representing Peak XV Partners, formerly Sequoia Capital, Process and Chan Zuckerberg. The company, that's Baiju's, has however denied these resignations. Maybe the directors have quit, like proverbial, well, independent directors deserting a sinking ship, or maybe not. After all, the thing that investors usually do in situations like this, if they can, is to bring about some change in management or take control. Be that as it may, elsewhere, Baiju's is battling lenders and essentially saying it can't pay up. And we are talking about loans. And more people, and thousands of more people, have been laid off. The destruction of capital at $6 billion is actually mind-boggling. A good part of it is unlikely to be recovered as things stand today unless some major changes are effected. Because if nothing else, the management seems to have lost the confidence of one and all. The distortion caused in the job market is much worse by hiring and then firing. 
Baiju's is of course not the first. One just hopes it's amongst the last, at least for the sake of the thousands still holding on to jobs in firms where the business case for their very existence is questionable. Before I go, the monsoons are delayed as you must be reading all over. The delay is in itself not troublesome, except that the anticipation of what that delay can do is already causing some stress and causing some prices to go up. Now, delays have happened before, but the combination of potential monsoon delays and an El Nino effect is something that's making everyone, including in the stock markets, a little jittery. There are several data points floating around, but I decided not to get into them because the synthesis of that data is important, as is the contextualization, because the data without context for example, the number of districts without rain can scare you. So I reached out to Madan Sabnavis, chief economist at Bank of Borora, to do a status check as we go into the weekend on where we stand right now on the delayed monsoons and what we should or should not worry about. Okay, there are two things here, Govind, about the late arrival of the monsoon. One is that even in the past, we have seen that monsoons rarely begin on June 1st. It always tends to be towards the end of June or even beginning of July. A delayed monsoon may not necessarily mean that the Kharif crop could get affected because uh, it's quite possible that the monsoon would intensify in the months of July and August. And as long as we have a proper monsoon season, that is for each and every crop, things could remain uh, rather normal. Now, this said, I think we should also remember that since there is very definite talk about El Nino happening or developing in this particular season, there could be a prolonged dry periods uh, during the course of our traditional monsoon season, which means that there could be certain disturbances in terms of rainfall across different regions in India. And given the fact that there are certain regions, especially in the interior, which are more dependent on monsoons than, say, probably the northern states or the northwestern states, which have access to irrigation, in particular, we have seen things like pulses, oil seeds, and cotton, which become vulnerable to the monsoons. So these could be possible pressure points going forward. So as of today, there may not be too much of fear, but the fact that we are sure about the El Nino, there could be some kind of disruptions which could be affecting certain crops and those crops being these three particular crops. And that could be affecting the overall Kharif prospects. Also, given the fact that monsoons are beginning late, there's a possibility of farmers switching crops, which means that the entire matrix of crops could change where farmers who traditionally grow rice could probably go in for millets because that requires less water for a shorter period of time. So these are possibilities. As of today, it's only fears or sentiment. Uh, we can't really say for sure that output will be lower, but definitely these are concerns in the market, which we are seeing today. And last question, uh, Madan. So this is the agriculture side of it. If assuming some of these fears come true, what is the follow-on effect that one can expect or anticipate? See, the follow-on effects which we see will be in terms of possible shortfalls in certain crops, which could be having an impact on uh, prices and hence generalized inflation. For example, we have seen uh, pulses, Tur, Moong and Oran. These are the three major Kharif crops which are grown. Prices have started moving up in the market, even though we had a very good season last year. And typically, these crops are grown once a year and the uh, produce is made available for the following 12 months until such time that the new crop comes in. Now, on account of the delayed monsoons, there are expectations that if the sowing starts late, let's assume that now the sowing begins, say, mid-July towards the end of July, the harvest too would probably be much later, in which case the stocks would uh, start getting depleted. 
So more in sympathy of this particular possibility, we have seen that the prices have started going up already in the market. And this will get exacerbated in case these things actually turn out to be true. So we have already seen the impact on prices of pulses, which is getting reflected also in my CPI index, where pulses inflation has been increasing in the last three, four months, ever since the news of the El Nino came through. Today, we're running at roughly around 6.5%. Right. Uh, Madan, thank you so much for this. Well, that's it for me for today. Have a great weekend. Do look out for our Saturday edition of The Core Report, which will feature an extended interview with a special guest from the logistics space. The first one will be a conversation with Sunil Nair, the CEO of Snowman Logistics, a logistics company. The excerpts of this conversation, which was already featured in today's podcast, and we spoke of an ice cream, but we will surely talk about things beyond that. Stay tuned. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.